friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pinizzato, as always, here with the good doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. And a doctor is coming to us today for the first time from New York. And so he's no longer just down the road. It's funny, we record the show remotely, even though we were a couple miles apart. <laughs> now we're a little further than that, and we're still doing this remotely. So uh, how are you settling in there, doctor? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. It's it's been a challenge as any move is, new job is. You there's things that you don't expect and don't plan for, and no matter how much effort and planning and preparation you put in, there's always there's always a couple things that that throw a barrier in your way that you have to overcome. And so, um, I'm working on those right now, just trying to smooth out the process and get into a routine. Sounds much like deer hunting, right? Uh, very rarely ever just you do all the preparation and get all ready to go. And then it very rarely plays out exactly how you envision. That's true. That's true. Speaking of deer hunting, we are going to continue our preseason deer, ser- deer story series. Now, I know it's not preseason for everybody. One of my former board members, Nicole Garris, shared a nice picture of a buck she shot in South Carolina here. So some states are hunting, but a lot of them aren't. Most aren't yet. But we'll still call it our preseason deer uh, story series with uh, this time we're going to talk with Nick Skinner of Iowa Land Company. He's a super talented guy uh, in a lot of ways in the industry, uh, but he also is a very good deer hunter and also lives in Iowa, which is a good place to be if you're if you're a good deer hunter. And he's going to share the story of his honeymoon buck, 191 inch deer that he shot a couple seasons ago. Lots of twists and turns, story of redemption. Uh, it's just it's just a neat story, and, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. Our sponsor for today is First Light. And so I know I have been getting all my camo organized, and I just recently placed an order with First Light. I needed to get a second pair of gloves. I've got a couple other things, some light, light uh, weather, or excuse me, warm weather base layers. And uh, also I want to mention First Light. I'm going to be placing another order. I wish they'd quit doing this, but they just came out with a jacket that I really, uh, I think is going to work for me called the Source Jacket. So be sure to check that out. It is, uh, as they describe it, it's an insulated puffy specifically made for the whitetail hunter. Uh, But unlike traditional compression jackets, this piece is both durable and silent. And so I like to have these pieces uh, that are kind of thin, but also provide that warmth. And uh, I think this is going to fit the bill for me. So check out the Source Jacket. And also know that you, when you purchase the Spectre pattern, you are supporting the Camo for Conservation Fund, which helps support the National Deer Association. So be sure to check out firstlight.com, not just for the source jacket, but all of their great products there. Ask NDA anything, that's next week. So just a reminder to get your questions in and we still have some openings. So I'd like to get a few questions and I'm gonna spice it up a little bit. This time uh, I'm gonna send you a Maybe we'll send you a cool NDA water bottle this time for the person that wins. So go ahead and send in your question for that. I want to also tell you our NDA newsletter article just came out. Uh, You're going to, when you listen to this, the next one will come out on Thursday. You're going to listen to this on Wednesday, but the one that came out this week has a great article from our friend, Brian Grossman. It talks about four terrain features that help fill deer tags. Uh, I think a lot of people just walk by a lot of the best places at times trying to get to where they think the best place is and this will i think help you with that and also the deer season 365 podcast most recent episode 
is saddle hunting with tethered's greg godfrey and so with the steady rise continued rise in saddle hunting that's one you're going to want to listen to uh, let's go ahead and get into the interview with nick but stay tuned we do have a b team report and doctor i got a i got a doozy for you this time i think i have you beat this time but but you just never know so i'm excited to tell you the story i'm excited to hear it all right let's go ahead and get into the interview with iowa land companies nick skinner My old friend Nick Skinner joins us here on the Coffee and Deer podcast. Nick is a uh, land agent with Iowa Land Company. He also is a marketer, a designer, excellent photographer, just a very skilled guy all the way around and particularly skilled also in the deer woods. Uh, I don't know, I probably don't know anybody that's racked up as many inches of antler as Nick has over the years. And we're going to talk specifically today about a deer that he shot in 2019. Uh, another deer we're talking about on the show here, close to 200 inches that he shot in his home state with a little help from his wife, it turns out. So we're going to hear that story. Looking forward to hearing that. And uh, yeah, Nick, is he's really one of the most skilled people, I think, in our industry that you may not have heard, heard about because he's just so darned humble. Uh, so Nick, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for stepping out of your comfort zone to talk a little bit about yourself today. And I'm going to ask you right off the bat to tell us about you. Yeah, well, I've... I've... I want to thank you guys for, uh, for allowing me to join. Um, haven't done one of these in, a, in probably a few years, a year and a half at least. So a um, little bit about me. Um, I live in Iowa. Uh, was actually born and raised in Missouri until I was about 12 years old. Uh, my parents were originally from Iowa. Um, and we moved back when I think I was 14, 13 or 14. Well, maybe 12. Um, to Iowa. Um, and it was the best decision for me, you know, looking back at it at the time, I didn't really, you know, know one way or another, but, um, my dad enjoyed the outdoors. Um, he, you know, I went with him, um, deer hunting, rifle hunting in Missouri, um, you know, and did a lot of pheasant hunting. We always came back a couple times a year, at least, uh, to pheasant hunt back in Iowa. Uh, my dad grew up pheasant hunting. That's kind of his passion. Uh, not so much the deer, deer and turkey hunting. So I kind of picked that up at a young age, kind of just on my own. Um, I knew I wanted to, I read a bunch of magazines when I was on the school bus riding to school and, and back home and knew that if I wanted to lengthen my, my deer season, I, I would have to, you know, get a bow, which my dad actually did have a bow for bow fishing, um, but he didn't use it for bow hunting. Uh, per se. So I actually started with that bow. Um, I took the reel off and my dad was like, what are you doing? And I started <laughs> using it. It was way too big for me at the time, but um, I was probably 12 or 14 or something along the 12, 13, 14, uh, pretty much right when we moved back to Iowa, but um, kind of picked up bow hunting kind of as a, um, a hobby, you know, um, I was all, I was in sports. So I was doing a lot of that when I was younger. Um, but then as I kind of uh, was was in school and growing up, we I grew up in a, a pretty rural area of Iowa, uh, actually western Iowa, just east of Sioux City, Iowa, uh, near Lawton, uh, Lawton Bronson area. Um, so it was it was a good, um, I guess, segue as far as 
you know, we only had 45 kids, 50 kids roughly in my, in my graduating class. And most of them were, you know, outdoorsy type people. Um, you know, so that was, I think, a, a, a very big help from where I was going to be growing up in Missouri, uh, in kind of the Kansas City um, area, so or metro. So I, you know, I'm very thankful that 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 opportunity existed. And then as I got through high school, I started to, I played sports, but I started to, um, I didn't, I ended up not playing basketball because it cut into to deer season and I uh, played uh, baseball, golf, and a few other sports. But, um, and then basically a little bit more about me. I, you know, I just picked up the passion of hunting, especially bow hunting, um, kind of on my own. Um, I did have one friend that that did it quite a bit as well. He was probably three or four years older than me in school and high school. So um, when he graduated, I really didn't have, I was kind of on my own at that point. Um, I do have three younger brothers. Um, one's a couple years younger than me. And then uh, I have twin brothers that are five years younger than me. So as I got older and old enough to drive and do things on my own, they were tagging along. And um, it was us for a lot of the times, honestly. Um, and, you know, we just, they kind of all gravitated towards the bow hunting side as well as I did. Um, and, and we did that a lot growing up. Um, currently, I live, um, I, I work for a company uh, called Whitetail Properties out of college um, for about seven, eight years in, in Pittsfield, Illinois. Um, love my time there. Um, it's a great organization, great company. And uh, from there, I ended up wanting to move back to Iowa, kind of where I was from. Um, nothing wrong with Illinois, but I, I just wanted to be back in Iowa. Kind of got homesick after, after a while. So ended up moving back to Iowa. Um, and then uh, a, a few years later, I worked uh, with my uncle a little bit, um, you know, kind of helping him with the trucking company. And then from there, um, I transitioned into uh, our company, Iowa Land Company. So um, I guess, uh, you know, I, I've kind of, I've traveled all over, especially with uh, the Midwest when I worked my previous job for Whitetail Properties, have seen a lot of, of really big deer, um, whether they be harvested or hunting them, you know, maybe not me personally, but filming them along the way or filming a hunter. Um, so I've been around big deer and I think that helped me in my previous job. Uh, you know, I was, I was put a lot of times with people that were hunting big deer just because I had that experience from being younger. Um, in Western Iowa, before I, you know, in my high school and college days, um, I was fortunate enough to shoot quite a few big deer. Um, you know, it, it was just kind of one of them things where I think I was quoted one time by a buddy of mine that was doing uh, some photography for Sitka gear is, uh, you know, you can't really, you can't kill big deer if you don't hunt where they live, you know? So that was kind of, you know, and I'm very fortunate to live in Iowa, but um, I still believe that you can live in Iowa and still not, you know, be on some of the type of deer that a lot of people think you, you should be on. So I think, you know, it's a lot of farm specific, you know, as far as we'll probably get into that later, but a little bit, I guess, about me is, is, I'm passionate about deer hunting. Um, have a have a wife of uh, three years now, and then also a one year old boy. Uh, just as of a couple of days ago, on the fifteenth. So, uh, 
our house is kind of chaos right now. We're getting ready for a one-year-old birthday party tomorrow. So, um, so it's a little bit chaos, but yeah, it's a little bit about me. Is, is there going to be smash cake at this birthday? I mean, surely, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I guess that's a given these days. Yeah, and and so. what's, what's your son's name? Because I think that's, that plays into all this. Yeah. Easton. <laughs> yep. Easton is his name. So, uh, and not really after the arrow company or anything like that. We just thought it was a, a kind of a cool name and, um, not one that's re- really popular. Um, you know, so we, uh, we'd like to, yeah, that's a great name. Mike, I want to unpack some of this stuff. So whenever whenever you were a kid and, you know, parents come in and say, hey, we're moving, you got the short end of the straw, man. You came to Pennsylvania. <laughs> they didn't say we're moving to Iowa. <laughs> well, if you think about it, it, it was going from, I'm not saying worse to worse, but I went, it was like a, a lateral shift for me because it was from New York to Pennsylvania. So it wasn't, actually, let me let me, let me back up just a second. To be honest with you, it was a better move for me because in New York, you couldn't hunt deer with a gun until you were 16. And um, so that's why I started bow hunting originally, because you could bow hunt in New York at 14. And so the move to Pennsylvania got me hunting a little bit earlier, just by a year or two. But so it was a it was a positive move for me, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, that's kind of similar with me a little bit is a lot of people, you know, and I'm sure my son will be one that is, um, that, that shoots his first deer with a gun. But I actually, my, the first deer I shot was with a bow. Um, I believe I was 13, 13 or 14. Um, but you know, it was one of them things where it was, you know, my dad didn't really, um, gun hunt per se once we moved to Iowa he was more on the pheasant hunting side and I grew up pheasant hunting and I have a big passion for that as well um we grew up on an acreage in rural Iowa you know like I said in the in the western part of the state and I could walk out my back door with you know we had three or four English Springer Spaniels and could walk you know thousands of acres you know for for pheasant hunting it wasn't so so much um the deer hunting you know it was kind of We'll probably get into a little bit more about that, but where I lived wasn't really known for, for big whitetails, you know, but I, I ended up kind of figuring out where they were based off some literature and research and things like that. And then driving, you know, that hour, hour and a half to be able to find them here. So a couple things here too. You, you had said earlier, you can't kill deer like that unless you're in a place that has them. That's definitely true. But what you said after that, I thought too, was very important. And that is, just because they're around you also doesn't mean that you're going to take one of these deer. And so I hear two sides of this right. story, right? I mean, every, not everybody can live in Iowa, but just because you live there, I, you know, I tell people, listen, man, like you think it's just because they're there, you can get up on them. And that's not the case. I mean, these deer are yeah. uh, super smart. And so just because they're there doesn't mean it's an automatic deal. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a hundred percent true, especially in, and, you know, I, growing up, I, I really didn't, you know, I, I would say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm all for hunting mature deer, whether it's, you know, um, just older deer that, you know, it's an eight or nine pointer that may not have a big rack, but, you know, typically when you're talking Iowa, you're talking bigger rack deer and, and that's what people are drawn to, you know, and that's why they wait the, you know, four or five years to get drawn. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, especially uh, selling real estate now for the past, you know, five years, it is, um, 
even when you're looking, you know, um, helping clients buy farms, you know, um, I think a lot of people, especially out of state, um, uh, non-residents, they just think I just need to find a farm and it's not necessarily the case. You know, you can, I hunt a lot of different farms that, you know, I've never had a deer over 160, 165 on, you know, you always hope you're going to, you know, that's going to show up. So you, you know, you keep the farm or, you know, whether it's a permission farm or you, or you lease it or own it. Um, but that's not always the case. It's very, you know, it's kind of like turkeys as well here in Iowa. Um, and, and across a lot of, uh, the country, I would say is, you know, there might be a lot of turkeys in your area, but they're, they're kind of farm specific depending on, you know, that habitat that's on that farm. Mike, you know, I always hesitate to bring a dog guy and a, and a bird guy on the show because, you know, the doctor here's a big bird and dog guy. So yeah. just, just go ahead. This is your chance. Let's, let's take a minute and talk about it. <laughs> well, well, let's just, just say that uh, the one thing that I was pleasantly surprised to hear was the fact that Iowa, and more specifically, your dad was such a big pheasant hunter. When we think of pheasants, we usually jump right to Kansas and the Dakotas. So so it was actually a, a surprise to me because when we hear Iowa, we think of deer. And, and that's really cool that you say Iowa and it's pheasant hunting as well. So um, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of great pheasant hunting across the northern half of the state. You know, um, we grew up in that in that western, northwest, very northwest corner uh, of the state, just east of Sioux City. And we had a ton of birds when we were growing up. They they kind of dwindled a little or they've kind of slowed down a little bit They're They kind of had a rough couple of years there of uh, wet springs through hatches and whatnot. So they've kind of they had a couple rough years. They're starting to rebound. But there's other areas in the central part of the state, you know, that are very, uh, very well off as far as pheasant hunting. But but yeah, it is something that gets overlooked. But we we had great pheasant hunting. Um, you know, I've I've actually never pheasant hunted South Dakota. Um, you know, I've always I've, I lived right there close. I've just never pheasant hunted across there. But um, a couple of my brothers have. Well, let's go from feathers to fur. Let's talk talk a little deer hunting. Now, Nick, I know you have shot a lot of really nice deer. I mean, a lot of them. So before we get into the 2019 season and, and what you refer to as the honeymoon buck, that's the main story here today. But just give us yeah. a quick run through of some of the other deer that you've shot that stand out to you that were pretty memorable. Yeah, so um, really, you know, and I shot most of them, honestly, before I, I kind of left Iowa and moved to Illinois because I didn't really have you know, as many chances to hunt. Once I moved to Illinois, I was more kind of behind the camera and more in a marketing role there. Um, but um, yeah, I've shot uh, some, been fortunate to shoot some really nice deer. I think I have, I don't know, three or four in the 170s, three or four in the in the 180s. Um, the honeymoon buck is in the low 90s. And then I have one that I shot in 2010. December of 2010 during the uh, second shotgun season uh, with a muzzleloader that scores uh, gross is 230, uh, 232, um, and then nets 212. All right, Mike, how many of our deer do we have to add up to get to those numbers? I don't know for me. He's thinking hard. <laughs> 10, 10 to ten to fifteen. You know, <laughs> I forgot about no. the big the big two thirty, uh, Nick. Yeah, so thanks for reminding me about that one. 
Yeah, yeah, but it, yeah it's, that it's, one. For every one of his is like three of ours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will say some of the more memorable hunts that I've ever had have been um, probably not even high scoring deer, you know. Um, that's obviously, you know, once you kind of, it's kind of one of them things where I don't really know how to, how to really put it in, in example of it. But, you know, once you kind of uh, hunt a big deer, you know, uh, whether it's mature or high, you know, it's just a specific deer. And then you, you pick him out, you know, whether it's beginning the season or he shows up during the season, then you hunt him, whether it's for uh, multiple years or, or a short time or, you know, but once you kind of pick that deer and you decide that's the deer you want, um, or maybe it's one of a couple, um, I don't know. It's just satisfying to, it's, it's just a challenge, I guess, you know, to, uh, to pick out that deer and whether it's high scoring or not, most of the time mature though, you know, it's just, it's really fun and, and satisfying. Hey, I don't imagine there was any competition between you and the brothers growing up, right? Or even, even to this day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one thing we're all in business together. Um, we all own our company together. Uh, there's four of us. Um, and, it is something that um, we get along very, very well. There's a lot of sellers that we talk to and individuals that are like, I don't know how you do it. You know, with us being siblings, we're very close. Um, we played sports together a lot in high school and, and, you know, just being together growing up a lot. But yeah, there's always that competitive edge. Um, you know, I, I, I will say there's not, it might be there, but we don't really uh, show it a lot on the deer hunting side. We're pretty, uh, we're pretty happy for each other on the deer hunting side, but you get into sports or some other arenas, you know, and, and that gets a little, uh, a little heated, I guess. Yeah. As it should, I, as a baseball coach, I was telling our players the other day, I was talking about being competitive and I see these younger kids nowadays. I don't think that they're not competitive, but it's not the same, like these rivalries and stuff. And a lot of them switch over and play different teams with each other. And I said, guys, I said, if I'm playing Scrabble with my mother right now, I want to beat her rear end. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, so yeah, it, that's, that's, that's it. I think, you know, I think there's definitely, you know, a little bit of lot, you know, that's a little has been lost a little bit, you know, depending on, you know, I, I guess a lot depends on the household you grew up in, you know, um, yeah. cause if I would say at least most kids that I know that grew up in a very competitive household, they're, they're pretty competitive, but, Yep. All right. So I'm going to give you the floor here. I'm going to set the stage. 2019 season rolls around. Uh, why don't you take us sort of from the top? We're going to hear about your bucks. So take us from when you first knew about the deer, if you did know about the deer and your pursuit of them. And this is a great story. So the floor is yours, Nick. Yeah. Um, so 2019, I kind of wrote down some notes. So I'll kind of look down a few times, but, um, it's, it's crazy how it's been a few years now. It seems like it was just last year. But um, so going into the 2019 season, um, I'm not a real big guy on, uh, I guess, putting out a ton of cameras prior to, to season. And I don't want to say season, but prior to September, let's say, you know, because those deer, they just move, they can move so much, especially on some of the farms that I hunt. So um I don't have real good luck on like mineral sites, things of that nature, as I think other guys do. Um, I've, I've kind of gone away from those more and tried to focus on like clover and just summer feeding patterns, kind of more in that 
late August, you know, early September timeframe. But um, so I, I was getting pictures of, of quite a few mature bucks. Um, I wouldn't say anything that was that compared to, to this deer. Um, but as you know, so I put cameras out probably middle to end of August, didn't really check them until like the beginning of August or beginning of September. Um, at the time I was running more cell cameras than I, than I do this time of year. Um, like right now I only have, I think one cell camera out, um, and the rest are all non-cellulars just more or less because trying to save money a little bit, but, um, also me and my wife like to go through SD cards, you know, and when it's the cell cameras, you don't really have that, you know, you get that instant information, but, um, you don't really have that, you know, being able to go out and kind of interact with, with nature, I guess as much. So, um, as we got into September, um, I did have, uh, one picture of this buck or a set, a series of pictures. I think it was two or three photos. Um, you couldn't see them real well. It was the first year that the corn or the farm had been in corn in probably, I don't know, three or four years since at least we, we had permission to hunt it. Um, so I didn't really know how that would do. Typically that's good. You know, that's a good sign for us. They may not summer as much there, but you have more deer that move in as you get closer to that end of September, October, November timeframe. But we would, we got into, you know, that, I would say mid to, I think it was around the 20th of September. And I had the series of photos of that deer. Couldn't really make out exactly what he was or even how old he was. They were pretty blur, you know, they were pretty off in the distance. He was kind of just cruising through a kind of an edge of a cornfield. Had some photos of him, didn't think a lot of him, but I thought kind of to myself, you know, I need to get a few more photos or cameras in that area and try to see what this deer is. Cause I didn't really recognize him just based off of, I think it was, two or three photos I had, but, um, it was a big year that year. Uh, me and my wife were planning on getting married, um, in October, October 12th. So that, that, uh, was interesting. You know, I always said kind of thought growing up, uh, had friends that, you know, were like, man, I'm never getting married in October, you know, or during hunting season. And I ended up, you know, we set that date, um, you know, and, so we set that date. The wedding was actually in Georgia. My wife, wife's originally from Georgia. So it was in Georgia. So I, I was able to get some cameras moved around, you know, in that area, that deer didn't really have any other photos of him on cell cameras, at least until, um, actually the, the night before our wedding. So October, so we went from like September 20th to like October 11th, um, that night, woke up the morning that I was getting married and of course naturally looking through photos of my on my phone and I was like wow because he was he was on I'd moved the cell camera to kind of more of a scrape area um I did a mock scrape and he was on it and there were quite a few photos of him and you know I obviously couldn't see my wife before we got married so I'm like sending her photos of him you know because she's just as um you know passionate about bow hunting and hunting as I am and so we looked at him. I could tell he was bigger at that, at that point. I had some, some friends and buddies that are, you know, big deer hunters as well coming down for the wedding. So, you know, I showed them later that night and they're like, yeah, that deer might surprise you, you know, and it's kind of hard to tell they were nighttime photos, but there were quite a few of them, you know, so you could kind of study them a little more. Uh, I didn't really recognize him at the time from years past. 
Um, we had a deer the year prior in eight, 2018 that had a really big five by side, but then he kind of had just had like a big peace sign off his, off his left side, I believe. And they were huge. They were like 12, 14 inches long, just mm. big spikes, but then they kind of split at the base. So I kind of wondered when we had a lot of photos of him, if that deer was going to turn into something, you know, and I thought to myself, well, if he doesn't, then you know, we'll, we'll try to find a youth hunter or somebody that can try to harvest him. But as we get back into 19, um, so we went from our wedding, uh, then we took like a three or four day trip to Bureau beach in Florida. Uh, it wasn't really our honeymoon, but we, we kind of went down there cause we're already down to Georgia, uh, for three or four days before we came back to the Midwest. And, um, so as, as, uh, my wife, she'll listen to this. She's, she knows this, but she, <laughs> Be careful, she kind of gets, yeah, she uh she smiles every time I say this, but you know, we were looking at photos because, you know, we had just recently had photos of him. So as we're on the trip, you know, and, and we did some some fun stuff. We went fishing and um kind of just enjoyed ourselves there on the beach um for a few days, then got back to the Midwest, you know, around I'd say, I don't know, I think it was around the seventeenth, eighteenth, twentieth, somewhere right in there. And then from there it's like, you know, you get back and it's like you know, you're trying to figure this deer out, you know, so I'm going, I had some non-cellular cameras in that area as well. So, you know, we go and check those. We did have more photos on him. We could tell he was, you know, definitely mature and he was, he was big, you know, uh, we didn't know quite how big, but uh, we knew he was, you know, pushing that 1765 to 170 mark just based off the photos. Um, and then as we fast forward, we really didn't, you know, I guess my big thing, and I, I think a lot of people that, you know, that hunt mature and big deer and are successful is I tried, I, when we went in that time, um, in late October, you know, we put fresh batteries in, swapped SD cards and just stayed out of there for the most part. Um, I don't think I went back in there until I believe it was October, I think it was Halloween. Um, we had a pretty good front, um, and, I, I actually hung a stand so my wife could be there as well. And she actually had her bow too, because my thoughts were, if, and I kind of set it up so she could still shoot. And if he came in, you know, presented like a, you know, for sure 20, 25 yard shot, I was going to have her shoot him. And if not, you know, if it was a little bit longer shot, if we saw him that night, then I would, then she would, or then I would probably shoot him. Now, Nick, so I gotta, got to I gotta stop you here because the last time you told me this story, you said you purposely set her up so that she'd be out of your way to shoot this deer. Yeah, I kind of set her up on the back <laughs> side of the tree. <laughs> uh, yeah, she'll, she, yeah, she'll probably uh, attest to that, I guess. Um, so that night, you know, it was a real, it was a good night. Um, I don't remember the exact, you know. Um, I guess, weather conditions, but it was a good night. It was a kind of a cold front coming in. Obviously that Halloween time frame is always good. Um, didn't have a lot of photos of the deer, but I just knew with where he was, or I had a good feeling that he was kind of on the edge of our, our farm. So I knew that if I hunted him or if we hunted him much, that there was that potential to push him off the farm, at least for, you know, that time frame when it, when it starts to get pretty good in October. So we just stayed out of there. Didn't really have any photos of him. Um, but I knew there were a lot of does in the area, um, you know, and they, and we had a couple good food plots right in that area. Um, so I just knew that if, 
where I thought to myself, if we could stay out of there and then pick the right days, I think we'd be good. We had really good access because we were walking through a, a standing cornfield basically to get into our tree stand. So it was kind of bulletproof with the right, with westerly winds. So we got set up, um, you know, we had a great hunt. I think we saw a couple pretty mature deer and, and younger deer, but we didn't see, we didn't see him. So, and then I guess I'll go back kind of miss. So I guess as the story unfolded, we, we, my wife kind of, I think it was my wife, but one of us said, you know, we, he's the honeymoon buck, you know, because it was kind of during our wedding time frame, and it wasn't really our honeymoon, but we didn't know exactly when we were going to take our honeymoon. Um, so we just decided to get away for a few days. And so that's kind of where he got that name, but, um, and then kind of fast forwarding. So I, we hunted him the 31st and the first, and my wife sat with, with me. And then there was another buck that she wanted to kind of hunt or at least see on a different, basically the total opposite end of the farm. Um, and so November 2nd, I believe it was, um, yeah, it was November 2nd. She went and decided to go hunt that deer. Um, and of course that's the night when I saw him originally. So he, so I'm sitting there kind of, it's probably an hour, hour and a half before dark and there's a big hillside to the West. And so the sun goes down there fairly quick, you know, because, uh, or, uh, yeah, fairly quick. So it goes kind of down where it's starting to get kind of cooler, you know, it's feeling pretty good. There's probably eight, 10 mile an hour wind. And they typically get off that ridge earlier because of that. It cools off quicker. You know, you can still see the sun still up, you know, out in the distance, but in that little pocket, they typically come in there, you know, because that sun's off of them pretty early. Well, I had, we had some deer starting to filter in or I did, and she was hunting on the other end of the farm and she uh she told me going into when she was hunting that she was going to keep an eye on my camera our cell cameras that i had close by to make sure i wasn't you know if the deer showed up i wasn't going to say oh no he didn't show up you know if i didn't get a <laughs> shot at it so she said she was keeping an eye on the cameras well sure enough i look out probably 150 yards away and he's standing out there and i'm like oh boy you know and as soon as i saw him you know or saw the rack i knew it was him and I put my binocs up. I had some deer kind of riding close to me, you know, below me in a food plot. And I kind of put my binocs up. And at that time, I really didn't know how big he was just based on trail camera photos because I hadn't seen him. Um, and that can obviously change one way or the other. Sometimes it goes, you know, the other way where you think, depending on the photos and how close they are, you think they're bigger than they are. But luckily for me, it was for us, it was kind of the opposite when I first saw him even with my eyes like I was I I couldn't put my binocs up yet because I had deer close to me and I was like that deer's big you know I yeah, pretty much yeah. sold myself and so I put, ended up getting my binocs up and as he was walking he was walking right along the timber edge so I could see his rack really well you know and I was like man that deer's big you know and I, I probably shouldn't have been saying that to myself because it got me kind of worked up at the time but he was still a ways off but he did cut from like 150 yards to the edge of the food plot, which was like 65 yards pretty quick. He kind of was chasing a couple, you know, checking does and whatnot. And that's basically what he did. He came into the food plot. He's checked some does. He was all around me basically all night, you know. And at the time, my phone was in my pocket, one of my pockets. And my he had walked in front of a camera 
and my wife had seen the photo. So she's texting me, my phone's buzzing, you know, in my pocket. <laughs> and I, at the time, I didn't even think that it was that. I just thought it was maybe a phone call or something was going on. But um, so at the, and then he basically comes in the food plot. To make a long story short, um, he comes in the food plot, he checks some doughs. I had a couple different chances where I didn't really have a chance, but I was like, I had tension on the release. He was within 30 yards even, but the way the stand was set up, there was kind of a big tree right here to my left, which I was happy about because it was, it provided a lot of cover for me, but it was, it was cutting off some of the food plot where I couldn't see him, you know, or get a shot. And a couple of times he was kind of chasing does. He'd leave the plot, he'd come back in and he chased one like right under me. But he didn't come. I mean, I could see like his shoulder, his head, his rack, and he was like 20 yards from me. And I and I actually drew at that point because he was kind of looking away from me. And I drew, and then he the, a, a smaller fawn kind of caught his attention behind him, and he darted back. So I draw down, and I'm like, man, like you know, like e even if I would have leaned out a little bit, I might have been able to sneak one in there, you know. So, but I thought to myself, I had plenty of time. I probably still had a you know, 20 minutes left of, of legal shooting light. So I'm like, he's going to come back in. Well, he really didn't. He kind of stayed down in that corner by that fawn and he, he hit a couple scrapes down there. Well, there, I had, I didn't really have a shooting lane, but I had an opening way to my left and it was starting to get to that time where I had to check my phone to see, you know, it's starting to get pretty dark. And I thought to myself, you know, he's kind of on the edge of the farm. You know, I, he was only like, you know, 27, 28 yards, maybe 30 at the most. And I thought to myself, I better try to get a crack through this opening, you know? And I, I, and when I, when I set the spot up, I really didn't have a shooting lane over there. So it was just kind of a natural opening. Um, but as you get low light, you know, it looks up more open than it really is, you know? Um, so he, he kind of starts acting like he's going to leave or chase a doe down in the timber. So I draw and I kind of told, it was kind of quick. I really hadn't made up my mind yet if I was going to try to take that shot, but it all happened, you know, like they all do really, but it happened so fast. I just drew back, you know, put my pin kind of back because he was quartering away and shot and it looked great, you know, from what I thought I could tell there wasn't a lot of penetration as he was running off. But I knew that it probably stuck in like the offside shoulder or hit it and maybe bounced out. I was shooting a mechanical broadhead at the time and I didn't think anything of it, you know, uh, and I still don't think that was a reason, you know, it just looked you know, like a better shot than what it originally was. So I backed out, told, you know, told her that I shot him, you know, and it was kind of one of the things where it's like, you know, I think I remember talking to her and she kind of wanted to go at least track him for a little ways, you know? And I was like, I don't, you know, we just decided to wait till the morning and then come back. Um, so we gave him plenty of time, came back, had all my brothers there. Um, uh, my wife was there and we tracked him for, you know, for a pretty good ways. Um, and there was a, there was some blood enough to track, you know, and it took quite a bit of time, I guess. We didn't really go that far. It just, you know, as you're finding blood here and there, it takes more and more time. Um, and really didn't see the sign that I thought I was going to see, you know. we I grid searched a couple areas, and then I just thought to myself, I found the arrow, and there wasn't a lot of penetration there. 
and there wasn't, it was kind of more, uh, it wasn't really, it wasn't good blood. It was kind of more of a bat, you know, it, it showed more of a back hit. Um, so looked for him for, I don't know, probably half a day really. And then I just decided since I was back there, I moved some cameras around and just told myself that, you know, I'm going to give it a, a, a little bit of time and not, you know, cause there were some neighbors and I don't know if they were hunting, but I didn't want to mess up their farms or anything like that. So I gave it some time. Um, and by time, I mean, a couple days, you know, um, was checking cameras, drove around the area looking for, you know, signs of, of birds or, you know, anything like that. Coyote talon, um, didn't really see any of that. Um, and it was, it was, it got kind of fairly hot there during that early part of November that year. And I remember I'd set up a couple cameras on scrapes. And so me and my wife were checking those pretty regular, you know, um, I had some non-cellular cameras that I later found out that had him on it right away, really. Um, but I didn't have, you know, I didn't have that information at the time, but, um, something else that was kind of interesting too, was my wife hadn't seen the buck, you know, in person. So she didn't know for sure if I was, you know, if I was, you know, seeing a bigger deer than what it really was or something like that. So she kind of wanted that confirmation. So she was, we were checking cards as we were tracking a little bit, like, you know, if we were close to a camera, she'd go and check it. And she, she checked the camera and she didn't really show me any of the pictures until like the next day. Um, but he was on there that night when he come through up in the timber more, we had a camera up kind of um, on a, like a little open pinch area on, a, on kind of a mode trail. And he was in there before he come out to where I saw him and he, there were tons of, I don't know, 20 photos of him right in front of the camera. And he, you know, he looked huge. And so she was like, and I said, is he on there? And she said, yeah, she said, but I'm not showing you the pictures, <laughs> you know, because on the, in the pictures, he looked 200 inches, really. I mean, if you were just to see the photos, you'd say that's, you know, wow. So, and there were so many good pictures of him seeing every angle. So she showed me later that, you know, the next day and I was like, wow, pretty much sick for the next three or four days. I'll bet. Well, it was November and that was on the 2nd of November. So then November 7th rolls around. We're hunting a little bit, but not a lot. Paige was more hunting than I was. Um, but I kind of told myself and told Paige that, you know, I had my chance, you know, at least with where he was at. And he was kind of only in one we only had photos of him in one little area of the farm. He wasn't really traveling, but it was getting that time where if he was going to travel, he was going to do it now, you know? Um, and the morning of November 7th, we were going to go and hunt. Um, and I think we were anyway, we were going to go hunt that area or at least she was, and I was going to hunt maybe a different part of the farm. I, I had made up my mind that morning what I was going to do. So wake up, check the, I think Paige saw, the photo of him first but he had he was hitting a scrape and we had a we had a spartan camera it was on video mode so you could you know request the video afterwards so we have the photo of him on a scrape and you could see like kind of where i hit him but it was it was kind of back um, and it was higher than i thought uh, it was kind of you know and it just didn't get much penetration and so I requested the video and he looked fine. He was hitting the scrape and he was, you know, throwing his head all around, thrashing around. Um, and obviously with that time of year, they had that adrenaline, you know, so I don't think it, I don't think it even phased him really. Mm -hmm. So we knew he was alive and that was at like 
I don't know, I want to say 435, 15, somewhere like that in the morning. So we saw, we had confirmation that he was alive and that he was right there in the same area. So we had a couple different options that she could go to. So I said, you know, we're going to, let's go over there. You get in this stand with this wind. And he, he was pretty close to where the photos were. So I just told her, we're going to have to get in really early and, you know, just try to slip in there as quietly as you can. So I initially, you know, we get to the farm, she goes in there and I'm waiting in the truck because we're so early, you know, and I, before she left, I even thought about going to a different farm when we discussed this and she, she, to this day, you know, is, uh, gives me, gives me a hard time about it, but I was, I, and I was pretty convinced I was going to go to a different farm, uh, because I knew that that deer was pretty, you know, tied to that area. And I just didn't, there wasn't much else that I really wanted to hunt on the other parts of the farm. So I just said, and, and I think I told her like, I'm going to go try this other farm. And she was like, I don't know if you should do that, you know? With, it was it was a nice morning. It was a north wind. It was like 25 degrees, you know, crisp, like pretty much what you dream of on November, you know, 7th, 8th, 9th, those, those time frames. And so I said, all right, I'll go try this spot that was quite a ways away. I mean, I think I, you know, looked at it. It was like 500 yards, uh, 600 yards as the crow flies from where we had photos of him. And we had never seen him anywhere close to that side of the farm or that area of the farm. And so she, you know, I'm, I get in the stand, uh, get everything set up and I'm kind of just sitting there, you know, because we got there so early, I'm sitting there kind of texting her, seeing, you know, if she's seeing anything. And then as the morning, you know, she, she's seeing some deer and I thought for sure that she would see him. I didn't know, you know, if she'd have an opportunity, but it did not cross my mind one time that I would. I would see him up where I was, you know, so I'm sitting there, you know, the, the sun's coming up pretty much right in front of me. I'm taking a couple of photos of it, you know, posting on Instagram. And next thing you know, you know, I hear kind of something raking kind of behind me to the left. And I knew from walking in, I could kind of see there were a couple of scrapes along the edge of this cornfield. That was pretty much what I was hunting. And I kind of glanced back and I just saw a rack up in a, you know, hitting a scrape up in a tree. And it was, it was still dark enough and I could only see part of him that his rack, I couldn't tell what it was. And then as I leaned out, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Cause you know, <laughs> I didn't have any other pictures of, of a big deer. And I, you know, I didn't want to lean out too much cause I'd be a little bit silhouetted there where, where I was. So I kind of leaned back and I was like, well, I better get my bow because it's either him or it's another big deer. You know, I mean, I could tell he was big. He was, you know, hitting a scrape. So he hits that scrape. I get my bow, turn around, and he's coming like right along the field edge, which is like 15, 16 yards, and he hits another scrape. And he's right, I mean, like, you know, and the way it kind of sets is he's, he's not really eye level with me, but he's higher than what he would be at normal level. You know, it kind of starts, the uh, field starts to come up. And, and so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm not really silhouetted, but that time of year, you don't have a lot of cover. You know, we had, we had some pretty windy conditions prior. So all the leaves were off the trees pretty much. And he was hitting us another scrape right in front of me. And he was looking like basically right at, me, you know, and he's hitting a scrape and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, and I knew at that point that it was him. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, the wind was perfect, there was, and it was high pressure. There was really no way he could win me. So I'm like, 
don't don't be a dummy and and mess this up you know because the only <laughs> way he would have he would have done it is hitting a scrape and look right at me you know and that's basically what he was doing and so I you know I'm on pins and needles and I'm sitting there like literally hugging the tree you know pushing against the tree so that he doesn't he doesn't catch my movement and he sat there for it was probably only a minute 45 seconds but it seemed like 15 minutes you know and he's sitting there and you know and then he he kind of he pees on his glands and then he hits it again you know and then he starts to leave like turn and so I'm getting ready you know I'm putting my release on and then he comes back to the scrape you know and I'm like come on man <laughs> you know you're, you're killing me here so then he you know hits the scrape then he moves on and I draw quick and he didn't see me. That's, you know, obviously once you get drawn, you're like, okay, you know, now you can, it's kind of a sign of relief, but really depending on the situation, that situation, it, you know, I really didn't have the time to take to be able to concentrate on my shot. It was kind of a, it had to happen pretty quick because he was going through another opening and then he was, depending on where he went, if he kept going down the field edge, I might not have got another shot at it. So, or a shot at him. So he, you know, I didn't even stop him because I was just afraid that he was going to be spooked off anything, you know, uh, because of what had happened prior. So I shoot him, it blows through him and he, he cuts down in the timber right in front of me and he starts bounding and then he stops at like 50 yards and he's looking around, you know, and I, I grabbed my binox and I didn't really have a shot at him. So I'm just looking to see if I see, I don't see any blood on him or anything, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, what just happened? You know, like, I'm pretty sure I saw it go through him, but it's, I look over and it's in the field, you know, um, just sitting there and I'm like, okay, well, um, you know, and then he, he, he darted off and I could hear him kind of breathing hard, you know, almost like, you know, lungs, like he was trying to catch breath, but I didn't hear him crash or anything like that. So, you know, I text my wife and she's like, no way, you know, how did you see him over there? You know? And then she calls me and I'm, telling her you know and she's like are you serious and I'm like yeah I'm serious you know so I get down go look at my arrow and there wasn't a lot of I had a white uh, wrap with white fletching so there wasn't a lot of blood on it you know and I was like boy there was, there was actually quite a bit of fat on the arrow and on the, the fletching on all of it and I was like boy that's you know hopefully I didn't hit him high because he was he was kind of you know, I don't know. It was just kind of a different angle than you're kind of used to, um, you know, because the stand was fairly high. Well, so I talked to her, you know, and then I, and then I just told myself, there's no way I missed a, you know, a, basically a chip shot at him. And so I just, we decided we were going to go trailing for a little ways and just see how the blood was. And we, we got down and I told her, you know, he stopped somewhere right down in here. We were looking and she actually found where he stopped and there was quite, there was a bunch of blood right there. Cause he was standing there, you know, for, I don't know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds before he bolted. And then there was good blood and he was just right over the hill, but it was, it was kind of wild. It was just, uh, I don't know, I guess like all of them, you know, sign of relief, but you know, the chase, the, the process and the chase of them is always the fun part, you know, um, once they're, once they're expired, it's like, you know, it, you kind of, you're thankful for it, but you kind of, you know, you look back on it the few days after and you're kind of like, all right, now what, you know, <laughs> you know, you kind of, and I know my wife, like she really wanted to, you know, have a chance at that deer. And I, I really thought she, she would have that morning or, you know, in the next few days leading up to it, if she hunted hard. 
and you know she, she wasn't she was happy for me but I could tell like you know there wasn't a whole lot for her to be looking forward to once you have a deer like that you know and you're hunting him and then he's he's dead you know whether your neighbor shoots it or you know you hit by a car or whatever you know you kind of have that I'm sure she kind of had that sign of um you know I guess just not really relief but I guess just kind of you know what do, where do I go now with it you know hunting wise but I mean we had plenty of deer to, to hunt it just wasn't quite that caliber of deer so. you know anybody that's been hunting uh you know avidly a long period of time understands that feeling whether you've shot the deer or somebody I mean I shot one opening day one year that I felt lost the whole remaining part of that season right that yeah over. yeah and so yeah, yeah when when the when the big one you know, is down. I think people have that feeling. And Mike, is, as we were listening to that, he used the term pins and needles a couple of times. Uh, I was on pins and needles listening to the story. I mean, we got a redemption story here, a second chance, the whole deal where the buck's yeah. scraping and looking at him. I mean, what, what were you, what was going through your mind, Mike? What was going through my mind was, I guess, a little bit of jealousy because I don't get those opportunities. I'm a, I'm a one and done type of guy. And that's why I think I prepare as meticulously as I do because I've never had a situation where I've been smiled upon twice. I mean, I might get smiled upon once, but after that, it's it's over for me. So I always hear these stories with people saying that, you know, like they, they either miss or they had a hit that wasn't um, lethal and they get a second chance. Now, granted, some of that chalks up to very hard hunting uh, a little bit of luck I'm, in this situation. He just went to a different stand. But um, for those people out there that say, you know, gosh, I wish that, you know, that would have, you know, I would get a chance like that. It, it's, it can happen. It, it definitely can. And that's why after one of those low moments, you keep going, you know, you jump back in the right. saddle and you ride because you never know when your next chance or next opportunity is going to come and what it might be. And it might be on that same deer or one even bigger. So um, yeah, to me, that's a very important point to, to remember, not in the sense that, yeah, well, you know, there's just some people that are always lucky, you know, they fall out of, out of a, you know, a truck and, you know, land in a pile of turd and find a, a diamond in it. You know what I mean? It's just right. one of those things that right. there's people yeah. that are negative, but realizing that if you look at it for and really what it is is that you never give up you just keep if you love to hunt you just keep hunting right right yeah and i think you know a lot of things or a lot that goes into something like that especially if you if you hit a deer you know and you're tracking it is um you know and i can't really say there was just like something in my gut that after while we were trailing that deer there was nothing on that trail that really suggested he was he it was a fatal hit you know um there it wasn't good blood there he did he never betted one time if he would have betted i would have done things a little differently you know i, I would have probably stopped there waited and really scoured the area really well but there was nothing there during the track that suggested that um that he it was a fatal hit so and, you know, I looked. I did, you know, in my opinion, my due diligence in, in looking for him, you know, enough. But I also, in the back of my mind, thought, well, it may have not hit where I thought it did, you know, because I've had some experiences when I've been younger where, you know, it, it didn't hit where I thought it did. I ended up recovering the deer, but a lot of times, you know, you're in that moment. And your first call you make or you're the first person you tell, you're like, oh, yeah, I hit him great, you know, 
And then you start thinking about it a little bit with that adrenaline and everything. And you're like, boy, I don't know, you know, what angle really was he at? And one thing too, that was in the back of my mind a little bit was when we went and trailed him the next morning, I got up in my tree stand to figure out exactly like where he was. I knew where he was, but like what I shot through, because I didn't have a great idea because I didn't trim that area of what I shot through. So I got up in the tree stand and looked and there were a couple like uh leaveless twigs out further out that i thought to myself after you know i didn't really say it at the time but uh, after we trailed him and i and we didn't find him i was like you know what with the lack of penetration and you know it didn't hit where i thought it did obviously and maybe i clipped one of those little twigs you know and, and it could have just been me too but they were kind of right in the middle of it and in them low light situations you know, you don't see those a lot of times, you know. Um, but, yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, depending on the blood trail and the situation and things like that, um, they, in my opinion, if you totally stay out of that area, cell cameras have changed the game because if I wouldn't have had a cell camera there to be able to have that information at that time, I would have, we would have hunted, but um, we would have been in there a lot more, in my opinion, checking the cards and, you know, probably would have maybe bumped him rather than having that information without being in there. So um, I know that cell cameras are, you know, a controversial topic, but um, I think they can be good and bad depending on how they're used. Yep, I agree. There's there's a lot more. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of data you can get, important data that can help you make smart decisions. Uh, right. I know I certainly use them and the doctor does as well. So matter of fact, while we're sitting here recording, I'm seeing notifications come in that I've got pictures coming. So yeah. 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 So yeah. Nick, tell us about, we'll step out of the deer woods for a second. Not completely. Uh, Iowa land company, you're in the land business with your brothers. Can people right. out there, I guess for someone that's sitting out there listening to this and they say, man, I'd really like to have my own piece of land, but there's just no way I can do it. I think you've probably made a bunch of those dreams actually become reality. So it's not as out of reach as someone might think. Right. 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 Yeah. I think, um, you know, it, a lot depends if you're, if you're dead set on, you know, we just, our, our business is called Iowa land company. So we just focus on Iowa land. Um, you know, there's other, you know, companies that are in multiple States and, you know, service that I think, you know, if you're just talking Iowa and that's your, your, your goal is to, to own a piece in Iowa, I think the biggest thing is to, you know, is to kind of figure out from, and this is kind of, some people think it's common sense, but I don't, I don't, I talk to a lot of buyers and I don't know how well they, they understand the process of figuring out how much money you can budget or save, you know, whether it's per year or whatnot, but how much money talk to a banker and talk to probably a banker in Iowa not so much just, you know, I mean, there are a few national companies that you can talk to, but talk to somebody that's a banker that's local in that area and figure out how much you can afford, you know, um, or just yourself figure out how much you can afford. And then from there, the biggest thing with, with buying land is the down payment. You know, I mean, anybody that, that sells land or has bought land is going to tell you that, you know, the down payment is the biggest hurdle to, to cross. So it's a matter of, you know, how bad do you want it? And then 
Um, also, you know, whether you're selling stuff you don't need or, you know, whether it's a camper or boats or whatever, but, you know, that down payment is the biggest thing. And with the way the market is right now, especially here in Iowa, but it's across, I, I follow different states as well. It just keeps going up and up and there's, there hasn't been a ceiling yet. Um, so I think the biggest thing is just getting a piece bought, you know, uh, finding out what your budget is, you know, contacting somebody, you know, because there are listings that are off market sometimes, you know, um, I actually sold a couple of years ago. I sold Bill Winkie's farm, um, here in Iowa. And that was an off the, you know, it was a pocket listing per se, mm -hmm. you know, he would have sold it for the right price. I had somebody that was pretty dead set on finding a big farm, you know, and uh, wanting it in one area per se and not scattered farms. And it just worked perfect for him, but we do have those listings available. And I think, you know, the biggest thing is to start planning for it. You, most of the time, you're not just going to luck into, at least in this market, you're not going to luck into a deal. You might, if you go private party or something like that, or you, you build a relationship with an agent to where we get a listing, we, you know, it's maybe it's not underpriced, but it's, it's kind of a farm that needs work, but it's in your price range. I think that's, you know, those are some pretty big keys is to figure out what you uh, can afford have a relationship with a banker that's local uh, to Iowa or to the state that you're looking to purchase in and then figure out, you know, uh, with building that relationship with an agent on what exactly you're looking for. And honestly, like, you know, um, uh, some agents are different, but the more you can bug an agent um, is probably a good thing because we get calls all the time of people looking for similar property you know, um, so the more you can bug us, the more we know that you're serious, you know, um, and I think that's that's the key. And then just to be transparent with us, the agents, you know, because sometimes, you know, you you might um, be biting off more than you can chew, you know, a little bit where your dream is to own 160 acres or 200 acres. But really, when you when you look at the numbers, um, you might be only able to afford that 80, you know, or a 60 or something, which there's no, there's, you know, no problem with that. It's just being, um, I guess, just being upfront and, and I guess being aware of what you, you know, what that budget really is. Well, I think that's great advice, Nick. And uh, you're in Iowa, but as you said, get a relationship with an agent and understand what you can do in your local area. And if you right. are in Iowa, though, you can look Nick and Iowa Land Company up at iowalandcompany.com. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we've been in business for about just shy of six years now. Um, we've, we've been in real estate a lot longer. My brothers have sold um, prior. I think uh, my brother Cody has about 11 years of experience selling. And then Matt and Luke have um, quite a bit as well. I think maybe seven or eight. So um, I've probably been in real estate longer, um, but not really selling as long as, as they have, but uh, more on the marketing side and understand that side of it very well as well. But yeah, I think, um, you know, for us, we, we definitely sell a lot of, you know, South Central, I would say rec or, or Southern tier um, rec or hunting farms. We also sell a lot of, uh, and we per, uh, perform a lot of land auctions. Um, in the state, most of that is on the northern half of the state, you know, because 
once you get north of Interstate 80, there's definitely some river corridors, you know, um, and there's some areas, pockets, western Iowa, far eastern Iowa that are heavily timbered. But there's a there's a big swath there in Iowa that's farmland. So that's kind of been another niche that we've found is, is farmland auctions. So we do a lot of that. But um, I assume most of the listeners for this podcast will be uh, on the deer hunting side. But another tip that I would say, too, is, you know, if you're not dead set on, on a state or on an area, um, whether, it, you know, if you're not dead set on Iowa, then I would probably look at maybe some other states that offer, you know, probably some lower price land, whether that be Kentucky, Oklahoma is very, is very popular right now. Um, some, you know, Kansas is very popular, but you can buy with that budget, you can buy more acres, you know, um, you know, so I think just looking what's out there, um, you know, but for our sake, you know, I would say Iowa is, um, it's definitely a special place. We probably take it for granted a little bit because we live here, but, um, you know, going back to a little bit from what we said at the beginning, you can buy a farm in Iowa and not have the caliber of deer that you're looking for as well so having that relationship with an agent and knowing that this is a good area or you know this farm has the potential to be very good if that agent knows that area is very important because um you know i've i've hunted a lot of farms in iowa and a lot of farms that don't produce the type of deer that you would think they would produce you know, if you just walked it. So having that knowledge, that local knowledge is very, very beneficial. Well, that's a lot of great advice, Nick, and we definitely appreciate it. If you are in Iowa, folks, look them up. And if not, take the advice that Nick gave you and use it to uh, build your own dream. Because even if it's not perfect initially, you can certainly bring it to something you want. So Nick, thank you so much for all your time, for sharing the, the story of the honeymoon buck and this yeah. will be another one to get people, I think, fired up heading into the next season. So thank you again. Yeah, no problem. And a one one quick thing, I I I I know I need to uh, thank my wife because if and I don't know how it really worked out, but that morning, like I said, I would have never went to that to that stand. I would have left that farm really once I dropped her off and went to another farm. So. Um, and who knows, you know, she might've ended up harvesting that buck later on in the season. Maybe I would have had another chance at it, but, um, I don't know why, but she had a, an intuition, I guess, that you better stay and at least hunt somewhere close to me, <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. Well, Hey, I, that's, I think that's the perfect way to end it and very wise move on your part. Next time it's going to be her turn and we're going to have her on right. the show telling the story. So, uh, yeah, yeah. She's got a couple good ones to chase this year. So I'm, uh. I'm, I'm kind of in the, in the back seat uh, this year. So, Doctor, you've never met Nick in person. Uh, I've been around him a bunch, and I can tell you, he's one of those guys that when you see him, he just brings a smile to your face. He's a very humble, very positive person and a lot of fun to be around, and he also tells a pretty good deer story. Yeah, and I will have to say that um, looking a little bit deeper, he, uh, his wife is lucky to have him, I guess, because – it seems like he really prioritizes her hunting endeavors as well. So that's, that's refreshing. Yeah. And, and as we said, to close the interview there, we're going to do this podcast with her next time. And she's going to be the one that's going to tag out on one of these Iowa giants. It's just, I thought it was such, such a cool story. Everything from the, the way they supported each other through it, which was really cool. Um, 
you know, the, the fact that he became aware of this deer, but as happens to many of us, you get a picture sometimes and it's, especially the first pictures you get, it's not always easy to tell exactly what it is you're looking at. And he kind of progressed through that. They got pictures initially, couldn't really tell. And it wasn't until he really saw it in person that he had a full understanding of the type of deer this was. Well, it even sounded like after he had taken his first shot at that deer and his wife was looking at the pictures the following day was when that buck really presented a good good set of images to show exactly how big he was. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting story about how all these pieces came together and it continued to evolve and um, culminated in a, in a victory and a win. Yeah, I think the big takeaway from that one is going to be definitely perseverance. Don't give up. You got to hang in there when things don't go your way. Nick could have very easily given up and he didn't. Uh, we didn't get into it in his interview, but a couple other things that he said that are important takeaways is, uh, number one, they had good entrance routes to the stands where they weren't going to bump the deer. They also hunted on the appropriate wind. And so I think a lot of people, when they're aware that there's a deer of any caliber that they want to shoot, when they're aware that it's there, they will overdo it and kind of crash in and hunt at the wrong times. And next thing you know, they chase the deer out of there. So I think patience, Mike, was a virtue. Yeah, and the information that they got from their cellular and non-cellular cameras that whether it be coincidence, luck, or a little bit of both, it really helped them to make good decisions. Speaking of good decisions or lack of good decisions, it's time for the B team report. And I'm I'm thinking, Mike, we might need some we might need some theme music whenever we do the B team report segment. Because <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I'm starting to get emails and notes from people about, Hey, I love the B team report because I've, I do stupid crap all the time too. And I just love hearing you guys talk about it. And I know that I'm not alone. So I got a couple of those this week. So I think the B team report is catching on. I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that people can identify with that again, as you and I have always kind of talked about, we're just regular people. We are not, and we don't, you know, look at ourselves as, as you know, superstars in any way, shape, or form. We are just your average, you know, Joe or Jenny, whatever you, you know, whichever one you like. That just we try really hard. We love it. We have a passion for it. But sometimes life just does not go our way, and we embrace that. And I guess that's the biggest thing that we do is we embrace our our B team ability. I'm just a little bit surprised that you even describe us as average because if we're average, I feel better about myself because I, <laughs> I feel I feel way below average most times. And, and I'm going to start this time with my B team report because this is a really below average move that I fully expected out of myself. And then I, it was self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly what happened, what I thought would happen is what happened. So as I'm getting into more serious into my preseason preparation, my shooting, um, I get down to the shooting range and I reach into my, uh, my quiver and I realize, oh, no range finder. Well, no big deal. Uh, I'll step off the ranges for now. I'm just trying to get all the muscle memory going and get blow the dust off. I'll grab it for next time. Well, lo and behold, the next time I'm going to get down to the range, can't find my range finder. Check, first thing I think is, okay, well, where did you use it last? And there's a joke about that, by the way, because I remember as a kid, you'd be like, hey, mom, I can't find my socks. And she'd say, well, where did you have them last? And I would be like, well, if I knew that, I would still have my socks. 
and so, but in my mind, I'm thinking, where did I have it last? Well, turkey season. I carry a rangefinder and and use it for turkey hunting. So, okay, it must be in my turkey gear. Nope, not in my turkey gear. Well, I go to the range anyway. I'm figuring, well, I'll take a deeper look next time. Well, I finally come back, and after searching my turkey gear multiple times, and then I even went to the places where I had hunted turkeys last, checked my setup locations, no rangefinder. Oh, this is typical of me. I've lost it. I need to get a new one. But I know as soon as I decide I need to get a new one, I'm going to find the old one. So I even pushed it a little further until finally a couple weeks ago, I said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just go ahead and get a new one. So I got myself a nice new Vortex rangefinder. Went down to the range, used it, everything's good. Well, just this week, I go out to my place and I'm and waiting for the electric company to come out because I'm trying to get a price on what it would take to get electric service to my place, which by the way, is incredibly expensive. And that's a whole other story. And while I'm waiting for him, I'm going to pull out, oh, I got a folding chair here. I'm going to pull this out and just sit here and relax. And there were actually turkeys chattering down over the hill. So I thought I'm just going to sit here and listen to these turkeys. So I popped the chair out sat down and I reached down and in the pocket of that folding chair is my rangefinder that I thought I'd lost. <laughs> and so the reason it's in there is because I had a blind set up and that chair was there and it was late in the season and I was just sort of sitting in that blind and I put that rangefinder in the pocket of that chair. And so now I've got Mike two rangefinders, which I guess, okay, put the one somewhere where you're going to, well, probably lose that too <laughs> but put it where you think you'll remember it so whenever you lose the other one you have another range finder so there you have it as soon as i buy a new range finder i find my other one what do you think of that <laughs> that's a great great story that's that's probably that's probably one of my favorites of recent days <laughs> i'm not even gonna go back to like weeks or months that's probably one of my favorite ones yeah so i'm an idiot you, knew it. you called it you called your shot You're like as soon as i buy this i'm gonna find it and you did well, I've done this before with things, right? I lose something and then I buy a replacement only to find the original and I've done it again. And, you know, range finders, it's not like, it's not a $10 item, right? Oh, I know. No, I mean, and, and when you say that, you know, you lose something and you were going back to your mother's statement of well, where'd you use it last? My line to my wife is, hey, do you know where this is? And she, and, and, and her response is, did you lose it? And my answer to her is, no, I didn't lose it. I just don't know where it is. And then she looks at me and said, that's the definition of something being lost. And I'm like, but that's not really how I look at it. So, Yep. Yep. Well, someone else out there has done the same thing, I'm sure. And so that's my B team report. There's more, but I'm going to stop at that one. How about you? Anything uh, pop up for you this since the last show? Well, you know me, it's, um, Mine is not nearly as as humorous. I mine was more struggle. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was trying to replace the fuel injector on my four wheeler so I can get my plots put in. As we are ticking away at time, but we've just finally started to get a little bit of rain, so it's, I'm still going to hold out for more of a late fall plot and planning. But um, I tore the plastics off that, the covers, um, removed the air box tried to loosen up the throttle body and the way, and the crazy thing is the fuel injector was held by just two Phillips head screws that stabilize this bracket that holds this fuel injector. And it's just press fit in into the fuel line. That's it. But the angle that they had those screws at was blocked by the cross frame in front of the gas tank. And I went out multiple times 
to buy, I'm like, oh, if I just buy this tool, I should be able to get to it. Nope, angle's wrong. If I buy this tool, I should be able to get to it. Nope, it's actually too deep and that little gap to get in there is much more shallow. I worked and spent over $35, $40 on, on tools and, and wasting my time. And when I originally called the, the cycle shop, they said, oh, it'll take three weeks to get it fixed, to get it fixed, to get in, we're backed up. I'm like, I can do it faster than that. It's been five weeks and I couldn't get it fixed. And I drop it off and they're like, yeah, we're still a week and a half behind. So technically seven weeks it's been and just because I was too proud to wait three weeks. And so to this day, I mean, it's Friday and I still middle of August and I still don't have the four wheeler and I haven't gotten the call from them that it's ready to be picked up yet. So that's where I'm at. Every, every guy or woman for that matter, anybody that has ever tried to tackle a project on their own has been here, right? Don't have the, don't have the right tool. The reason I said guys initially is because we have our egos are too big to allow us to believe that we can't do a project that we said we were going to do. And that leads to what you just said. That leads to frustration longer than you think, more money. Whereas I think most women would just be like, you know what? Why don't we just hire a professional? <laughs> yeah, maybe take a try at and, it. And that's person. true. And we, and we shouldn't, you know, paint with a broad brush stroke like that. But there are probably, you know, female listeners out there that are saying, well, hey, moron, why don't you just take it in the first place? And you wouldn't have had to, you know, go through so much trouble and strife. And, and, and they are right. And that's usually my wife. She is my, she's my, you know, my conscience, I guess, a lot of times my little, you know, little angel on my shoulder and say, Hey, dummy, just, just pay for it. And I'm like, yeah, but I look at it this way. It's like, well, it's going to cost me like X, X amount of dollars for, I mean, the, the part alone, the fuel injector when I bought was $165. Then the work I'm like, yeah, but that could be my brought my, you know, two packs broadheads for this year and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, I start rationalizing where the money could be spent. And, and here I am out the money and out the time. So lose, lose. That's my yep. life. Hey man, I've been there. I'm I'm encouraging you. You're you're telling me the stories along the way. I'm like, yeah, get that tool. Yeah, get those tools. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sending you. I'm sending you pictures. And I'm like, I really go like, okay, I'm going to get this tool. I'll be back in like 15 minutes. Next picture you get is me with that tool not fitting in at that angle. You know, it's like, oh, stupid. Yeah. Well, hey, that's the B team report for this episode. And uh, you know, I, I I think we need theme music, and we might even at some point have to. Maybe we'll take some B team reports from the listeners. I think that would be fun to tell listeners. Well, I think that could be a, like a whole show. That would be a great whole show if we could do that. Yeah. Well, let me think about that between now and the next episode. So yeah, you mentioned rain. Uh, I have germination on the plots I put in a couple weeks ago, and that's bittersweet because it's great to see those nice little plants coming up all over the place. But now I'm more terrified because that's the danger zone. If you get your plants that come up and then it doesn't rain for two weeks after that, they could burn out. Now I've been blessed with at least enough rain showers. You know, we've had been this little spell of pop-up showers. I think I've gotten just enough to get through that danger zone. And uh, I've also planted some a clover and winter wheat mix. Now that's a longer term project. I'm not looking at that as a hunting plot and I expect that to be good a year and a half from now. But uh, anyway, you know, Mike, you're, I don't think you're missing a whole lot by not having plants in the ground just yet, because again, you put them out there too early or you miss it you could be having to replant. Well, and, and what I'm planning, it, it doesn't, it's going to be fast germination and uh, palatability is going to be 
almost immediate. And I have planted as late as the first week in September. And that's the end of that first week, creeping into the second week of September. And um, if I've had to do it, I've done it and it's always turned out okay. But again, like I told you, I've always had a plan, like what's going to go in the ground and I have all of my seeds ready to go. And it's just going to be, do I plant them now or they get planted next spring? And um, I, but like you said, we've, we've done enough work with a chainsaw where I'm not going to lose any sleep over the fact if I can't get my, my plots in this year. Yep. That's it. You can't lose sleep over it. We were talking about wireless cameras earlier, cell cameras. I use those also because I'm not right down the road from my place to monitor what's growing and just see if my plots are greening up. But another thing I noticed, and this is irritating to me, I have turkeys all over my place and I think they're mostly hunting grasshoppers because there are a lot of grasshoppers. I've cleaned these fields up and they're, they're low, but they also, I think those little buggers are walking around plucking my new sprouts out of the ground. And uh, yeah. the way you're shaking your head and laughing, this is irritating to me. I'm not happy about it, but I have turkeys all <laughs> over the stinking place. And I, I just, I don't know what, I don't know how to get them out of there. <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm just stuck with them. Well, I mean, that's fine. It's, it's all part of it. I mean, you'll, you'll have issues with um, slugs at times, or, I mean, you never know what it's going to be. It's always going to be something. And, but that's, that's habitat work. You know, I mean, we try and plant just specifically for a species, but we really don't look close enough to, to, to really realize how many times a small sparrow is walking through there and plucking that, that uh, seed that swelled up with some water and nice and juicy with some, uh, pulp in it and down it goes so it, it's it's all part of the of the process and you have to embrace it or else you'll drive yourself crazy well now you just brought up sparrows and now i'm sitting here thinking about slugs and sparrows and turkeys and uh, <laughs> hey i will tell you this is a funny thing in that group of turkeys are these three really nice long beards like big old grizzly long beards they've been walking down past my camera this is how wildlife can be so consistent at times the last two days, 7.14 p.m., and then yesterday, 7.04 p.m., these same three longbeards walking right down the same trail. So if you don't think you can scout turkeys that way, you're wrong. Uh, they can get on a pattern, too. And if it was fall turkey season, I'd be sitting there waiting with a, uh, with a shotgun in my hand. <laughs> that might help your plot a little bit, too. That might. That might. All right. We're going to call it a show, folks. We're going to end it there. We appreciate you listening. Hopefully, again, we're going to continue with another. We got... Uh, coming up next episode, I'll tease this right now. We have the man who has now the best typical buck ever taken in the United States, just missing the world record Hanson buck. Uh, Dustin Huff is going to join us in the next episode. So give you something to look forward to there. We're really excited to have him on and to hear the story of uh, a true giant. Again, the biggest buck ever, the biggest typical buck ever taken in the United States that he took last year. And you're going to find out that uh, Dustin is a country music singer and songwriter, but he is, when it comes to hunting, uh, as average as any of us in terms of just loving the sport and getting out there. And he's not going around and hunting all these places all around the country as like someone with privilege. And I think you're going to love this story. So that's coming up on the next episode. For this one, let's go ahead and close it out. Uh, thanks again for listening. Check us out, DeerAssociation.com. If you're not already, please consider becoming a member. Sign up for that newsletter that we talked about. It's free. The next one comes out tomorrow. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, you can get it tomorrow. Uh, please do that. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.